0: Nope. I, I'm not going to sing. Don't worry. <laughs> I have many requests about singing and there are to not. <laughs> Please do it far, far away. Yes. Uh, it's really good to be with you this morning. I've, I've been tracking in my mind the number of connections with Cornerstone, really, over the years. Uh, there's just been a lot of people in different ways that we have been connected with as a school. I One thing I want to do for you right now is, Melody has some of our brochures for the fall uh, just so get a, everyone get one, so that you have some idea of what the seminary offers. It's not just for people going into ministry full-time vocationally. Uh, we have a significant number of our students have been people from the community, who I, I talked to Doug about this. Classes, You do You don't even have to take tests. You can audit it. Yeah, you can audit You can take it for credit. Get a master's degree. You can go. The whole range there. So, uh, we've had a variety uh, of different things. Some creative things we've offered. You know Melody if you are a cornerstoner, uh, and she's our dean and also teaches a number of courses for us as well. So uh, just so you have that, you can see what we are, and then just a thank you for all the relationships with the church and your supportiveness of the school through the years. However... I'm not going to go any longer into shameless advertising. What I'd like to do is look together at God's Word, because that's really, you came to meet the Lord. uh, And I'd like to encourage you, if you've got a Bible or you do it on an app or however you see the scripture, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, starting with verse 27. uh, 27 to 32. And... I'd like to look at the passage this morning and then think a little bit about who Jesus is in this passage and what it implies for us today as we encounter him directly and personally as a living Savior. So Luke 5, 27 to 32, and we're going to be talking together about crossing bridges. So this morning, we want to think about crossing bridges, and in particular to realize that we resemble Jesus most when we actually care about people that might be labeled as the wrong crowd by those around us. Those around us in the community could be Christians around us in the church. So we want to consider both what this means about Jesus and each one of us individually, and us following Jesus and how we relate to those that God's placed into our lives. So I'd like to pray for just a moment about God's Word and His Spirit speaking to us. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you've given us A written word that communicates your heart, your values to us. Thank you that you gave us a living word. The Lord Jesus who shows us exactly you. What God's like. Thank you that you've given us not just a historical narrative. But that this same Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago in Galilee is still alive and personally involved with our lives. So would you come, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Speak to us of Jesus. Speak to us of our need for him and of his all-sufficient answers and provisions in our life for forgiveness, to know your embrace and your love. Guide us today closer to you, and into your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to start by thinking about bridges. Bridges are very useful. Bridges get you from one place to the other. Uh, some of my favorite bridges. Uh, this is the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. It gets you from Staten Island into Brooklyn, New York. And this is taken from right below it when my daughter and her husband, uh, surprised hooked me into a 40-mile bike ride that went all around <laughs> Brooklyn and into Queens. Uh, but we stopped there and took some pictures of Verrazano Narrows. Uh, this is a covered bridge. It's an old wooden covered bridge. It's in Park County, Indiana. Every October, Park County sponsors a festival of covered bridges. It's worth your going if you're here in October and see all their covered bridges. But this bridge gets you from one side of the creek to the other. Here's the Brooklyn Bridge. It gets you from Manhattan over to Brooklyn, where we're standing. And it has the charming feature, besides crossing over the East River, that there is a walkway right in the middle, a very prominent and significant-sized walkway, so that you can stroll back and forth across the Brooklyn Bridge. If you're in New York, it's worth your doing. You get a great view of both Brooklyn and Manhattan as you cross the East River. So, Luke chapter 5. Let's think about Jesus. Jesus. And particularly his care for people who are seen as the wrong crowd, outsiders, people looked down upon. Uh, you might wonder what is the key to Jesus being able to do this? It's actually a very straightforward idea does not mean it's not challenging to me personally, but it's a straightforward idea. The key in Jesus' ministry that is so well exemplified in this story with Levi is that Jesus knew how to cross bridges. Jesus knew how to go from one side to the other. As we'll see, the people of his day thought that there were impassable barriers that separated different categories of people, so they never went close to certain types. And Jesus, disconcertingly, went right up to those people and engaged them personally. He crossed bridges. So let's look at the passage. We begin in 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And one of the features of Luke's style is that he often is more concise in expression than some of the other Gospels. And he packs a whole bunch into one verse. So we need to pause for a moment so that we get this set up right to understand what's happening. So, Jesus is with his disciples, and he crosses over the bridge in verse 27. Here's, here's the paradigm for how to do this. Jesus's ministry was primarily takes place, carried out, in the region of Galilee, up in the north of what is today Israel. Uh, And you can see Jerusalem is down there in Judea, And then there's Samaria between Judea and Galilee. Galilee up here in the north is a little bit like Kentucky. Uh, It's the sticks. It's out there in the boonies. Uh, I'm just, if any of you are from Kentucky, my apologies. Uh, I'm just coming off the way people in Illinois view Kentucky. Uh, So his ministry is carried out in Galilee and he has headquartered his ministry in a little town on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, which is really just a great big lake, uh, called Capernaum. And Capernaum happens to be on a main trade route that started in the first century way up to the northeast in Damascus and came down into the what's called the Hula Valley and south to Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee it goes right by Capernaum as it skirts the Sea of Galilee. Then it heads into the hills and over to the Mediterranean coastal plain and down to the south towards Egypt. A tremendous amount of trade and travelers passed along this road. It was the Interstate 74 of its day, if you will or 57 of its day, whichever interstate you like better. But there is something else you should notice from the map, and that's that there is a boundary between Roman districts that passes right near Capernaum. And as a result, the traffic would come down to the Sea of Galilee and Come out of one district into another. So the Roman IRS Bureau, the tax collecting people, set up a booth in Capernaum because you've just come across the border from one district into another. And they situated this there so that they could take tax. So that if you are traveling, they take a toll. And if you have two donkeys full of merchandise you're going to be selling somewhere, they take a tariff off of you as you come by. They get, they get your money. And the travelers coming along would have to come right on the road, right by this tax booth, It is the same thing that you see today on interstates after you cross a state boundary and you see those little signs that say, all trucks must weigh. This is what they're doing. It's all donkeys must weigh in the first century. And so Levi is an IRS agent, if you will, and he collects the surcharge Day by day in a little tiny town on the north side of the Sea of Galilee called Capernaum, Levi manned his tax booth. Uh, this by the way is Capernaum this is a it's a well excavated little town it's a it, we're talking like a thousand people okay this is really a small place it is. Well excavated, you can see here the the houses, the outline of the houses that archaeologists, of course everything has fallen down, but you can still see the outline of the foundations. And you can see the the synagogue is there in the background. That's actually the 4th century synagogue, but the foundations of the 1st century synagogue, where Jesus and the disciples went and worshipped, is still there intact. The The town is right on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. So because the trade route comes by, there's a lot of traffic. It's a strategic place, but it also is harbor home to a lot of little fishing boats. And you will recall, of course, that a number of the disciples are fishers, and they're out getting fish in the big lake we call the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus comes. Let's keep on verse 27 still for a moment. Uh, Let me explain just a little bit about uh, who these tax collectors are. There is a tax collector at his booth named Levi. This is the same person that the other Gospels label Matthew. It's very common in that day for Jewish men to have double names. So he is presumably Levi Matthew. And Levi, we know his occupation, but how many of you like people who work at the IRS? Okay, Most people don't like people who work at the IRS because they're trying to take your money and collect taxes. And I'm sure that's universal, not just in America, but in other countries that the tax people we wish would go away. It's worse for Levi, because in this culture, there is a so-called spiritual elite. They go by the name of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees despise tax collectors for more reasons than just that they're collecting taxes. Because a Jewish person who works to collect taxes is in the employ of the Roman government. And of course, this is the Roman Empire period, 1st century AD. And so we have somebody who is a collaborator with the occupying power. And if you know anything about 1st century Jewish attitudes and politics, they hate the Romans viciously. And it will, in a few decades, erupt into the great Jewish revolt that will turn out to be a total disaster for the Jewish people. Uh, but that's 40 years off in the future still. But the attitudes are already there. A lot is brewing at this point. And so the Pharisees look at tax collectors as people who have betrayed their people, their, their nation, their quislings because they work for the Romans. And they're very explicit. You can read this in the documents. The Pharisees say that anyone who is a tax collector, because they have betrayed their own people, dishonest, they will cheat you, and you can't trust them. You shouldn't have anything to do with them. Cut them off. Don't let them come into your society because they are so impure. And the Pharisees were very concerned, as we'll see, about purity, and they felt that if you hung out with somebody who's a tax collector, you're going to get contaminated, and it's going to be really bad for you. So you don't want to hang out with tax collectors. So this is all in the background. Now we'll meet another tax collector in Luke. You remember in Luke 19, you're going to meet Zacchaeus. It says he is a chief tax collector, and he is loaded, he is wealthy, because he's at the top of the tax farming pyramid, and he gets all kinds of money. Levi Matthew isn't wealthy, it doesn't say that, he's a toll booth guy. So he collects your money, but he can't rip you off the way somebody like Zacchaeus could. Uh, So he's still despised. So, Jesus, and this is why I say it just packs so much into a small space. It says they're out walking around in Capernaum one day. They come along, and there's Levi sitting at his tax collector booth, and Jesus walks up to him. Okay, you read it and you think, so what? In that culture, he's got his disciples with him, and they're going, um, um, he's going over there? He's going by? He's going to talk to Levi? Oh, shoot. We have to be seen with him talking with Levi? And Jesus goes right up to Levi and says, follow me. So evidently, Jesus has been building a relationship with Levi. Jesus doesn't do this cold turkey. We know from the other Gospels that there are early points in his ministry where he's building relationships with the people who become his disciples before he ever calls them. So you presume he knows, he's seen him out on the streets, he's talked with him. But still... Jesus walks up to him, red flag number one in that culture, and he says, Follow me, which is an invitation to become part of his circle of disciples, which is red flag number two, three, four, five, and six, because you've got all the disciples who are already following Jesus going, He's inviting him to be part of our circle? This clown? We're fishermen. We do an honest living, but this guy? So, one verse packs an awful lot of background that lets you understand just how radically different the walk through Capernaum that day was, and how disturbing it was to the other disciples. Jesus is unfazed by all the strictures of hatred and division in his society. He goes right to Levi, and he says, follow me. That's a command, actually. It's an invitation and a command both together. Now, when we started chapter 5, do you remember what the first incident was in chapter 5 of Luke? It is Peter who is out fishing. Jesus helps them get a really good catch of fish, even though Jesus isn't a fisher professional. And Peter basically says, uh, I'm out on this. I can't be around you, Jesus. And Jesus says, follow me. And Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, I'm a sinner. I can't do this. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm going to help you fish for people, not just fish. So here we have now at the end of the chapter, or further towards the end of the chapter, Jesus doing the same thing with a tax collector. And you, as an onlooker, disciple, or anybody else, are going, heavens, he'll even do this with a tax collector. Verse 14, Jesus had shown grace and favor to a leper. 15, many people in the crowds who came to him for healing. 24 and 25, a paralyzed man. Now, to somebody in social disfavor because of his occupation. He continues this pattern of crossing the bridge to those on the edge of society. 17 to 26, the story of the paralytic, of course, wasn't just featuring the fact he healed the paralytic, but features the fact that Jesus is able to forgive sins. And now... He illustrates this again, but with a totally unexpected object. He ties, and of course this ties, what's the first words? After this, which ties you right to the story before. After the healing and forgiving of the paralytic. So Jesus, though it causes controversy, sees the person in need more than the approval ratings from society around and its leaders, And goes across the bridge. Now, Levi. So the first interaction, of course, is the model that we're going to get. And you see it in the interaction of Jesus and Levi. First, Jesus crosses the bridge. Look at Levi's response. Decisive faith. 28 and 29 give you two steps. Or two parts, components. First, there is a decisive action that he is going to follow Jesus. It's immediate, total obedience. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. So, Levi does what? Well, he's sitting in the tax booth. So, that first verb is very literal. He gets up, but he leaves everything. Because he is signing on for three years of tagging behind Jesus as he goes throughout Galilee teaching and talking about the gospel to bring people to God and healing sickness and casting out demons going to be three years worth. He is really leaving everything, not just for an afternoon off. He is leaving his career. He is leaving his livelihood. He is leaving his source of income. So this is a rather dramatic, decisive moment for Levi. He's confident enough in who Jesus is that he gets up and says, I'm done. You've heard of a two-week notice? This is a two-minute notice for his supervisor. Uh, He leaves. And that determines his next three years and then his life beyond. He's never going to be back at the IRS office. But there's more. Look at the next verse. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. He devotes his resources to bring his friends to Jesus. Evidently, the first step for him in following Jesus is to connect other people with Jesus. He throws a feast, a banquet, he has people over for a meal okay there is nothing remarkably unusual about this they prepare food they invite friends they come and have fun that's what he does now you you'll notice several things it says it's at levi's house, So even though he's left everything, he still owns a house, and part of devoting himself to following Jesus may be leaving certain things and making a clean break, as with his career in this case, but he still has a house, and following Jesus implies using that resource differently. He doesn't get rid of the house, he still invites people over to a big banquet. So he sponsors a party, ministry by party. It's an entirely natural event to get people together, a big dinner party. And whom does he invite? Now Levi could have said, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. I got these other disciples in my group. I'm going to have them over. He makes a break with his career. He doesn't make a break with his relationships, He invites all his old friends who don't know Jesus, really. And he says, I want you to get to know this Jesus. And it says that they are eating with them. Who's them? The antecedents are Levi and Jesus. So Levi's at the banquet that he's sponsoring and his old friends are there, but they're eating with them, which is Levi, and his guest of honor, Jesus. And in some way, he's communicating to these people, wow, this Jesus is totally different. He's leading me towards, he's connecting me with God, but he's not like any of the other leaders around. You need to get to know him. Which is, of course, part of Luke's gospel message to us that you need to be like Jesus, but you also need to be like that crowd and get to know him personally and directly. And who's on the guest list? Well, it's his established network of notorious friends and associates, tax collectors, he's invited friends from work, and others. And as we'll see in a moment, the Pharisees are going to assess this crowd and say, these are all people on the outs. You shouldn't be hanging out with them because they're going to contaminate you. They're going to get you spiritually dirty. What is going on? Now, the Pharisees have fabricated a whole new layer of law. And we'll talk about that in a moment when we see them. But their idea is that if you'd follow our laws, you'll be able to keep the law God gave us in the Old Testament even better than what God gave us. And Levi has a group of people who do not have the time or the resources to study the Pharisaic laws because it's very complicated. And so these are people who are common workers. They are trying to survive. They're trying to make a living. They're trying to put food on the table. They're trying to get home and be there for their spouse and children. And they can't possibly spend the time that it would take to master the Pharisaic regulations. So the Pharisees say, look at them. They're not like us. They don't do the things that we say they should. So they're just dirty and unspiritual. So here you have your first paradigm of encountering Jesus. Look at Levi. His life takes a total turn, dramatically, because of Jesus. He can't wait to share Jesus with his friends from his circle. And he has received grace freely from Jesus because nobody would expect him to be included in a rabbi's circle of disciples. Yet Jesus has just said, come on, you're in. So he turns around and gives generously to others' lives, to connect them with Jesus. But you notice one thing? How totally everyday and normal this all is? He's at work. Jesus says, why don't you leave work and be a disciple? So he says, okay, I'm done. Goes with Jesus, and then he has a party. So it gives us some reflection points. Uh, How do you do, and I ask myself these questions, how do you do crossing bridges? What makes you afraid to cross bridges to people who need Jesus Christ, but are somehow distant from you, or maybe not even approved by people around you? What gets in the way for you? And then thinking of Levi, just how decisive has your response to Jesus been? It doesn't mean God wants you to leave your occupation necessarily. Many people, he wants to glorify him in their careers. It doesn't have to, Levi, you don't do, you don't parrot everything. But the key thing is that Jesus says, follow me to Levi. And Jesus says, follow me to you, to every one of us here. What do you do? What is your response to a living Lord Jesus? And what will that imply for you? So if that's the model, the interaction of Jesus and Levi, the passage also gives us the mission of crossing bridges. And we see that in the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees in 30 to 32. We start with the Pharisees. So we saw Jesus And then Levi in sequence in the model. And now in the mission, we see the Pharisees first. And the Pharisees' response is like that old song. You're breaking all the rules. Uh, Verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why? Oh, why? Do you guys eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So somebody is watching. Somebody's near at hand, looking on. It's not just Levi and his friends from the streets. And we don't know when this verse 30 happens, whether it's right after the banquet or whether they wait a while and then they corner the disciples. Uh, It's not clear when, but it's the Pharisees and teachers of the law or scribes who belong to their sect, who teach the law in their way. So... We go from looking at the joy of the party as we're eating and we're drinking and we're getting to know Jesus and having fun to turn our gaze to the dour faces and acid tones of the officially recognized spiritual leaders of the people. And the text says they complained. And it's a wonderful word. In the original Greek, it's the word gonguzo, which I love because it's a word about grumping. And when you start to read it in the text, you realize that it's actually one of those words that sounds like what it's describing. They're grumming against Jesus and his disciples. They're grumping. And so they complain. And you'll notice to whom they complain. And don't miss that in chapter 5, we've been tracking the Pharisees. So in chapter 5, verse 17, they are sitting by... Watching what Jesus does because they want to trap him. 21, they mutter among themselves because they don't approve. Uh, it's still not open. Verse 30, here, they finally garner enough courage that they come out and they speak to Jesus' disciples. The problem's not the disciples, they don't like Jesus. So, they still don't go direct to Jesus. They go to the disciples. Maybe they feel the disciples are more vulnerable and they could corner them. They try. And so they charge the disciples with doing wrong, which of course includes Jesus. 31 and 32, who's going to answer them? It's Jesus, who will step in and say, Oh, by the way, guys, let's talk about this. Uh, And then in 33, they finally address Jesus directly. But they have to work up to it as you go through the chapter. So, what's the question for the disciples about Jesus' practice? It is a direct, clear question. Why do y'all eat and drink with tax collectors? Yuck! And where the text had described them as others, the Pharisees called them sinners. Well, we're all sinners. Everybody needs God's forgiveness. What is the key to call them sinners? Well, the Pharisees have erected this whole thought structure to help you obey the law. So the Old Testament law is very freeing. It shows us what God's like. It shows us his values. It shows us how God would act to other people in that day and age to show his love. The law is something that still applies to the Christian, and you just have to understand it in context so you see what comes over into our society and how. But the Pharisees have said, oh, law, these are things we can do. Part of the point of the law, according to the Bible, is it shows us we need God and we aren't perfect and we need a Savior. The Pharisees said, oh, good. Look, the law, things we can check off. And if we check them all off, God will smile on us and say, that's really good. You're perfect. Ha! Anyway, the Pharisees think they can get perfect by doing things. So they want to make sure that they guard so they don't violate the law. So, for example, it says in the law, set aside time to rest. Because the heart of God is that you're not a machine and you need rest. You're designed so that you need a balance of work and rest. So it talks about keeping a Sabbath. The Pharisees go, oh, Sabbath. What does that mean? Well, it has to be on one day a week, just like this. And well, what does that mean? What's, what's too much work? You've got to walk around. So what, what do we do? So you can go three-fifths of a mile. They defined it. This is how far you can go. And if you go four-fifths of a mile, you've worked and you broke the Sabbath, Sinner. But if you go two-fifths of a mile, you're just fine. But dang it, my cousin is a mile and a half away and we're getting together on Sabbath. I need to get there. What do I do? The Pharisees, oh, okay, there's a way we deal with this. Uh, If on Friday, before the Sabbath, you take food and drink, take a a bottled water and sandwich and deposit them at a house of a friend that's three-fifths of a mile away, you go down the road, another three-fifths of a mile, and deposit some more bottled water and a sandwich at the house of a friend. Then you can on the Sabbath walk to the one house, have a drink, have a sandwich, and that becomes your home. So that you're starting over again and it sets the clock again. You can go another three-fifths of a mile. Okay, you get what's going on. What they've done is they've created a huge superstructure. It is legalistic to the extreme, designed in their mind to protect you from ever violating the law, but it all assumes that you can gain righteousness by works and that you can be good enough for God. And so we've gone, it's totally different from the law of the Bible, the Old Testament law, which is freeing. Because it shows you what God's like and what he, how he loves us and his values. Uh, this is something very different. And so the Pharisees are going, these people are in the hoi polloi. They don't keep the law the way we do. It's not the law. It's their set layer on layer of additional laws to make you do things. And of course, you can only master this if you have a lot of time to devote to studying it. And so these people who are just barely surviving, are, they're the trash because they don't study our law, our regulations as Pharisees. And so if you hang out with them, you're going to be con- contaminated. Jesus couldn't possibly be a good rabbi and a teacher if he's hanging out with these kind of people. What disciples? What are you guys doing? Why? Oh, Why? Do you? But that's not really the question. Why? Why? Does Jesus, your rabbi, you think you trust him, hang out with these kinds of people? You're eating, you're drinking, you're having meals with them. They're going to get you dirty. This is the worst thing possible. It will wreck your purity. So they censure the attitude of Jesus, his openness to cross bridges and engage anyone. Their concern with appearance will lead them to lose the people in the process. It is an apparent piety that is destructive and overlooks real need. So to truly follow Jesus, in some way we are called to break down barriers, cross bridges of all types. It might be economic, it might be social, it might be ethnic, it might be racial, Cross the bridges. Well, okay, so the Pharisees have said, look, you are breaking all the rules. They come at some point and they've seen this and then they approach the disciples and question it. Jesus responds, this is my mission. 31 and 32. 31. Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He begins with a picture. It's a metaphor. It's a picture. He starts with something that is less directly offensive. doesn't seem like he's assaulting, he's attacking them or anything like that. But it's, they, they get a direct answer from Jesus and it gives them the rationale for his actions in terms of the theology that drives what he's doing, drives his interactions in society. He begins with a picture from life. Sick people are the ones who need doctors. He cites what sounds like a proverb, presumably, of that day. Who goes to a doctor, and why did they go? Well, why do you go to a doctor? How many of you who live locally have called Carl Clinic, or Christie, or Praveena or whatever your, your, your place may be, or wherever you live, the hospital or the doctor's office there, it's 8.30 in the morning. You call, you get the nurse who's setting up schedule for the day, and you say, can I see Dr. Smith today? And the nurse says, well, we've got an opening at 3.30. Would that work? But what's the problem? What seems, let me note this down on your chart, what seems to be the issue today? And said, nothing. I'm feeling great. I never felt better, actually. I'm exercising, I'm eating healthy. I, I, no, are you feeling sick? Do you have headaches, sinus, any, no, oh, no, I feel really good. Why do you want to see the doctor? Well, you don't want to see the doctor then. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. We want to avoid doctors if we can. Uh, doctors are wonderful, but you go to a doctor because you know you need them. I need somebody who can tell me what's wrong. I need somebody who can give me medication and a treatment plan, and I know I can't help myself. So Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's sick people who know they need help. So, verse 32, he gives the basic principle. Sinners need to repent. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So he closes out the vignette with the same focus it began with the call to discipleship. He takes the picture and makes it explicit, which gives a rendering of his target audience, if you will. This is who Jesus has come to reach. Now he makes another contrast. It's not a metaphor. Not sick and healthy, but sinners and righteous. And of course, he says, My mission is not to seek out the righteous and call them to repent. But you ask. None of us is righteous. So Jesus is using righteous in terms of perception. Those people who perceive themselves as not needing God and any help. They don't see they need forgiveness. So there is a relative use of righteous or maybe a sarcastic use of righteous by Jesus here. It's people who in their own eyes perceive themselves to not need God. I'm righteous all by myself. So the target of his mission is those who know they are sick. Those who say, I am a sinner. I mess up. I am not like God. I know I'm not like Jesus. I can't do that. I don't. I fail again and again. I need God's grace. I need His love. I need His forgiveness. I need Him to deal with my sin and wash it away. That's the kind of people who need a Savior. They know they need a Savior. They see their own need and that they're unable to heal themselves And even if they seem to be ostracized, floundering, rejected, unattractive, his mission is to call them, notice where it goes, to repentance. So what's repentance? Repentance is both an Old Testament prophetic word, and then in the New Testament it picks up the same image. Repentance basically means that I am heading in one direction in life. It's it's a very visual uh, concept. It's It's an idea, but it's based off of a very definitive picture. In other words, I have decided that I am setting my life to fulfill my dreams, my goals, what I want. It's about me. And so I am leaving God behind and I am walking in the direction of what ultimately is selfish and self-centered, i.e. my sin, my sinful obsession with myself and satisfying myself. And I walk farther and farther in the wrong direction away from God. To repent, both in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, and in the Greek in the New Testament, has the idea of a 180. That I turn away from myself, my sin, where I've been heading, and I go towards God. I've come to call sinners, to do 180s, to turn and repent. And of course, this is what Levi's just done. He's accepted Jesus' invitation. It is an invitation of grace. Jesus goes right to the lost. He takes the initiative. He is completely proactive. He seeks sinners. He takes the initiative. He develops the relationships. How can you build bridges? Again, raising similar, but now further steps for reflection. So what are the pressures from those around you that keep you from crossing bridges. In first century Galilee, there was tremendous pressure from the spiritual leaders of the day not to have anything to do with a huge number of people in a certain class. And Jesus simply crossed the bridge and ignored or overcame that pressure. It was something the disciples, like you and me, need to learn. How does your life calling reflect Jesus' mission? You may be called to all kinds of different disciplines and professions. You may be studying, still preparing for what's in the future. But how does your life calling reflect Jesus' mission that he crossed bridges? That he wasn't limited just to those who felt safe, approved, clean, clean, And how does our church's mission reflect Jesus's? How should it? In other words, a church ought to mirror Jesus. When you come to church, your experience should in some way resemble what it would have been like to run into Jesus on the streets of Capernaum. The acceptance, the forgiveness, the embrace, the love, the willingness to have no holds barred to deal with anyone, to engage them and invite them in. So the model shown in the interaction of Jesus and Levi, he crosses the bridges and Levi responds decisively. The mission from the Pharisees question And Jesus' answer, he tells us his target, it's the sinners, the people who need a Savior and know it. So envision, as we close the sermon, is there somebody that God's placed on your heart, somebody in your circle that you're going to deal with this week? cross paths with on Tuesday or Friday or whatever it may be. Maybe they're unlikely. Maybe other believers even would be disapproving. But God has placed them on your heart as a person with need, particularly need for Jesus Christ and personal connection with Him. And you need to cross the bridge. How will you do that? How do you take the first step this week? Jesus said it was His mission. Is it mine? Is it yours? Let's cross the bridges. Let me just pray and give you a moment. If you've got that person envisioned in your mind and heart, ask God what He wants you to do to take that first step to cross a bridge. This week, before it's gone from your mind. While the conviction is there, it may be a phone call, it may be a visit, it may be something that you need to drop over at their house. You know, respond to the Lord. Lord Jesus. Thank you that you crossed the bridge to each of us in our need or are right now crossing that bridge to come close to us today, 2017, here in Central Illinois. May we respond to you with decisive faith action and may we respond by following you In crossing bridges. In Jesus name. Amen.